For whatever reason that's beyond the purview of a movie dork podcast, the human mind is wired to classify, categorize, and organize things into neat little boxes. Unfortunately for this impulse, history is messy, subjective, and incremental. You'll find very few clear-cut examples of one historical event objectively ending an era in one fell swoop and setting up a new order. This applies to grandiose things like geological epochs, but also small things like the creative gestational cycles of an entertainment company. <laughs> uh, dorky millennials like myself attach great weight to the Disney Renaissance, a period where the struggling studio revitalized itself with an impressive hot streak of successful, widely loved film, TV, and video game projects. Most cite the beginning of the Disney Renaissance to be the 1989 release of The Little Mermaid, but the end of the golden era has been the subject of lots of nerdy-ass debate. Was it when Jeffrey Katzenberg was forced out of the company in 1994? Was it when John Musker and Ron Clement's ambitious years in development pet project Treasure Planet bombed in 2002? That would make a good episode. I've encountered a few who say that Howard Ashman's 1991 death set the decline in motion, which feels early to me. Michael Eisner getting the boot in 2005 feels a bit late. Uh, I'll reiterate that I don't think that it was one event that ended the Disney Renaissance. According to Wikipedia, Tarzan's the last one, but I have, <laughs> I have feelings about that. I think a number of factors contributed to the period's end, not the least of which is time. Hot streaks don't last forever, by definition, and by the end of the 90s, the tropes and formulas that powered the Disney Renaissance were starting to feel played out. Regardless, the Disney Renaissance was a distant memory by 2007 when Meet the Robinsons, this recording subject, debuted. The Disney Renaissance had inspired rival studios to step up their game, and for the first time in its history, aside from that Don Bluth period, Disney had serious competition in the field of feature-length animation. Disney's output during this period often felt like the studio was throwing anything it could think of at the wall and hoping that something would stick. Dabble in computer animation like Pixar? Get really sardonic like Katzenberg's new studio DreamWorks? Songs? No songs? What do these damn kids want, and why is Pixar better at figuring it out than we are? <laughs> Fuck it, let's buy Pixar outright and put its main guy in charge of our movies. No, I don't care if he's a sex pest. <laughs> Meet the Robinsons is the last movie to come out in the murky period between the end of the Disney Renaissance and the beginning of the John Lasseter reorienting the ship period. It's not an especially prominent film in the studio's catalog, but that's a relative statement. Disney is a massive oligarch whose output currently occupies 40% of Hollywood's box office earnings in most years. Even their turkeys are distributed widely enough to be seen by thousands and thousands of people. That means that every Disney movie, no matter how minor, is the favorite Disney movie of many, many people. So yeah, I'm going to be talking about Meet the Robinsons with someone who likes it more than anything else Disney has ever put its name on. <laughs> My name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive. All right, joining me on this one is Rachel. Hello. Meet the Robinsons is not Rachel's favorite Disney no. movie. That is Beauty and the Beast, which I did with Sylvan because that's Sylvan's favorite. But you did do Toy Story, which is pretty much tied. Uh, although, uh, we haven't done the Aristocats yet, and that's in your top five. Oh yes, it is. Love the Aristocats. I think that's the crappiest one in your top five. Yeah, it probably is. I also like The Great Mouse Detective, so... But we, we, we did The Great yeah, Mouse Detective did. together. Okay. But uh, Meet the Robinsons is the favorite movie of Kate, and this is Kate's first episode. Yay, Hi, welcome, hello. Kate. 
All right, we have a lot of Disney adults on the program, but you are a special Disney adult I'm because like the Disneyest of Disney adults. You worked at the parks. You I put did. on the fur. I, I oh my god, you did! I didn't actually put on the fur. I was not actually, as they would say, friends with any of the characters. Oh. Air quotes. <laughs> I love that you have to do that. <laughs> Hashtag character integrity. But I did. I worked at both Hollywood Studios and Magic Kingdom. I, I signed the paperwork, I sold my soul to Mickey Mouse for a few years, and, uh, and then I left because he didn't pay me enough money. You were agnostic, though. You were also at Six Flags. I know I was at Universal, so I was really, I was pretty pantheistic there. <laughs> but you also have Meet the Robinsons, Inc. I do. I do have a tattoo of Keep Moving Forward in the Meet the Robinsons Tomorrowland font. It looks really good. I mean, I knew it was right away. Thanks. Yeah, it's a couple years old now. I'm hoping that it doesn't get hazy with time. And the line works pretty good. It's pretty solid, yeah. All right, this is tangential, but um, I spoke with someone else who actually did wear the fur at Disney Parks and went through the training course. And he said it was an intense training course and you have to maintain a character. And he, mm. was, he was Buzz Lightyear. Mm. And he said, like on the last day is like okay from here on out you go out in the parks you are Buzz Lightyear you're not allowed to do anything that Buzz Lightyear would never do but for this moment and for this moment only you can do whatever you want while you're in the suit and there's a photo of Minnie Mouse grinding on him My first week, I uh, came back into the... So my first week, I was in a uh, position that it basically shared space with the entertainment people. And I came back in, and Goofy was fully dressed, but lying on the break room couch in a Titanic Jack painting with, like, one of your friends. <laughs> and he, he was like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, I didn't... You're brand new. I'm scarring you emotionally. I was like, it's fine. I've worked at Six Flags. I've been teabagged by Bugs Bunny before. Like, also, <laughs> Donald and Mickey have nieces and nephews. Goofy has a son. Goofy fucks. Yeah, Goofy canonically fucks. He yucks people. I mean, you saw everyone seen that, like, your Mickey Mouse short, the modern one, where um, Mickey and Minnie go on a date inside him. Mm-hmm. It's like the Vore episode. I don't think I have seen that I'll one. I'll show it to you. It's real. Yeah, oh, boy. I also haven't. I've, I've either not seen it or I've buried it so deep. It's with the, the same series dog. where um, Pluto gets sick. They take Goofy to a dog show. <laughs> he acts like a dog dog. Yeah, a- anyways. <laughs> well, sorry, what did you do, Sorry, before Sweet Ryan goes on to ask his question? I was like, what else did you do at Disney? Were you just like a cashier or I worked, I worked the rides mostly. Okay. Yeah, so I did I did a couple of different things, but my longest stint was I pressed the buttons that make the boats go at the pirate thread. Nice. And I endured thousands upon thousands of uh, pirate jokes from middle-aged men. Oh, yep. It was awesome. You, you told me that you wore the fur at Six Flags, though. You, you, I did. You, you weren't Mickey, but you wore Bugs. I was Bugs. Yeah, that's oh a thing. Uh, that's so fun. I remember, like, one time I had to take a picture of Jess to, like, audition for Wonder mm-hmm. Woman. I'm like, they're so oh stupid God, to not take that. her. <laughs> They didn't uh, take me either. It's okay. Anyways, you're you're a fair bit younger than us, so you were like right in Disney's Target demo when Meet the Robinsons came out. I imagine that contributed to it being your favorite. But why do you think Meet the Robinsons is your preferred Disney movie? I actually, so the first time I watched it was actually not when it first came out. 
but I watched it probably like a month after I graduated high school in 2012, which is probably also why it's one of my favorites because it was in that time where it was recommended to me by my best friend and she was like, you have to watch this movie. So I like late night in my bedroom, I downloaded it onto my computer. I pulled it up. I sat there sobbing because I was in that period where I had just graduated high school. I'm about to have my last summer at home before I go off and do God knows whatever college has in store. So the whole message of keep moving forward just really hit me right where it like exactly needed to at that exact moment. And since then, it's kind of always been like a comfort fallback movie for me that it's just when I'm down, when I'm sad, it's always there. And the keep moving forward is always there, which is also why that's what I have. When did you get the tattoo? I got the tattoo actually with my mom because it became something that was like important to us. The whole Mm -hmm. concept to keep moving forward. We got them together March 2020, literally three days before the world shut down. Oh, shit. Okay. (laughs) Literally, it was like one of the last things anyone did. We made jokes with the tattoo artist about, oh, like you're cleaning everything up. We gotta be sanitary because it was literally like March 10th. Oh, shit. Damn. (laughs) I got a haircut. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I literally, I was all in a hotel with my whole family because my aunt had just passed away and the hotel literally shut down while we were all still in it. Oh, my God. (laughs) But it wasn't, was it your first tattoo? No, it's my second. I have a Peter Pan tattoo as well. Nice. I have a top three favorite Disney movies. I can't pick just one, but it's Meet the Robinsons, Peter Pan, and then Little Mermaid. So I still need whatever my Little Mermaid tattoo is, and then I'll have the trifecta. I I don't have any Disney tattoos, but I do have uh, Peter Rabbit on my arm. Little Mermaid, first first movie I saw in theaters. Me too. I mean, I was four. And it was new. I think th- they did it. My mother claims they did a re-release of it at some point. Oh, uh, uh, we'll, we'll get back to that. Disney re-releases <laughs> like a motherfucker. Mine was uh, Toy Story. Oh, that's so yep. Anyways, plot recap. Uh, our main character is Lewis, who is a 12-year-old orphan and aspiring inventor. His energy and eccentricity, however, have been scaring off potential parents, which we see when he demonstrates a PB&J machine that malfunctions and sprays the potential father who has a peanut allergy. <laughs> when that happens. Yeah, uh, deterred by getting shut down so many times, he has decided to invent a mind scanner device to bring back memories of his biological mother who abandoned him at the orphanage. He is interrupted by a 13-year-old boy who is named Wilbur Robinson. He's a mysterious figure who claims to be a time cop from the future. He needs to recover a time machine that was stolen by a man wearing a robotic bowler hat. (laughs) Lewis blows him him off in order to demonstrate the scanner, but bowler hat guy has sabotaged it, which causes it to malfunction and throws the science fair into chaos. Lewis leaves while bowler hat guy, with the help of his robotic bowler hat, who is named Doris, by the way that he steals the remnants of the scanner with plans to successfully pass it off as his own invention to a corporation wilbur confronts lewis at the roof of the orphanage and tries to convince him to repair the scanner at this point lewis incredulously demands that wilbur demonstrate that he is actually from the future which he does by putting him in a time machine and taking him to the year 2037 which is very highly advanced technologically we visit a place called Todayland to demonstrate it <laughs> and yes it has lots of easter eggs for Tomorrowland. of course it does <laughs> When they arrive, uh, Lewis realizes that he can simply use the time machine to meet his mother personally, and uh, the resulting argument with him, between him and uh, Wilbur causes the time machine to crash. 
Wilbur asks Lewis to fix the time machine, and Lewis agrees on the condition that Wilbur takes him to visit his mother afterwards. Reluctantly, Wilbur agrees and hides Lewis in the garage, but Lewis gets sucked up through a Futurama pneumatic tube and winds up meeting the rest of the Robinson family, except for the family patriarch Cornelius, Wilbur's father and the inventor of the time technologies, who's away on a business trip. Convenient. Having followed Lewis to the future, Bowler Hat Guy and Doris try to kidnap him, but the Robinsons beat them back, largely because Bowler Hat Guy is terrible at this. He's just like, I'm going to kidnap a dinosaur and have the dinosaur capture the kid. Look, he's doing his best. <laughs> what about that talking frog? His best. <laughs> The Robinsons, charmed by Lewis's enthusiastic embrace of invention, offer to adopt him when they find out that he's an orphan, but they change their mind when they find out that he is from their past and see his distinctive hairdo. Wilbur admits to lying to Lewis about taking him back to see his mom, causing Lewis to run off in disgust. This prompts Bowler Hat Guy and Doris to approach Lewis and offer to take him to his mother if he fixes the memory scanner. Once he does, they betray him and tie him up. See, the bowler hat reveals that Cornelius Robinson is, in fact, Lewis's future self, and that he himself is an adult version of Lewis's roommate, Michael Yagubian. <laughs> because he was kept awake all night by Lewis's work on the scanner, Goob fell asleep during a Little League baseball game and failed to make an important catch in the ninth inning, costing his team the championship. Their team's called the Dinos, and his little dinosaur. It's really cute. <laughs> Goob became so withdrawn and bitter that uh, he just basically drove away anybody who wanted to befriend or adopt him and just grew up in squalor in the abandoned orphanage until he became an adult. At that point, he was approached by Doris the Hat, who was a rejected invention by the future Lewis, and they sort of teamed up to uh, go back in time and ruin Lewis's life. Leaving Lewis in the future, they return to the past and enact their plan successfully this time. Bowler Hat Guy tried to pitch the invention earlier in the movie and it didn't quite work out. Because he's sadly a little dumb. <laughs> yeah, growing up in isolation in an abandoned orphanage for 30 years that does things to you. I like the joke that his handwriting and spelling is that of a child, even if he's like a, I don't know, 40-year-old man. At this point, it is revealed that Doris has tricked everyone. Once mass-produced, the Doris hats dispose of Goob and enslave humanity Borg-style, although they kind of remind me of Star of the Conqueror. Uh, at this point, Lewis repairs the second time machine, confronts Doris in the past, and destroys her by promising to never invent her, which is, you know, a pretty easy way to dispose of the film's main villain. <laughs> It was actually kind of fun though sort of like and then the animator had a massive heart attack and the animated <laughs> creature was no more <laughs> this restores the future to its previous state uh, and at the insistence of lewis wilbur tries to ask the adult goob to join the family but he has fled in remorse i i personally thought that the most affecting scene in the movie is when they see the binder where all of his plans are scrubbed out and he doesn't know what to do with himself from oh. here on out <laughs> Back in Wilbur's time, Lewis finally meets Cornelius face to face. Cornelius explains how the memory scanner started their successful career and persuades Lewis to return to the science fair and demonstrate it more thoroughly. Wilbur takes Lewis back, but makes one stop first. As he promised, he takes Lewis back to see the moment when his mother abandoned him at the orphanage. Lewis nearly taps his mother's shoulder, but he stops himself and leaves, and sort of inadvertently sets up the scene that we see at the very beginning of the movie. This is, you know, screenwriting 101. If you don't know how to end it, you just loop back to the way you started. People think you're real clever. 
Now, Wilbur drops Lewis off in his own time and leaves, and Lewis heads to the fair en route, wa- uh, taking a moment to wake up Goob just in time for him to make the winning catch. And Goob is a- adopted later that day. It all worked out. Uh, back at the fair, Lewis asks for one more chance to demonstrate his scanner, which this time succeeds. Lewis is adopted by Lucille, one of the science fair judges, and her husband Bud, who nickname him Cornelius and take him home. The film ends with a quote which reiterates the message of not dwelling on failures and keep moving forward, which is attributed to Walt Disney. I know he's the founder of the company, but they might have been better served uh, with somebody who actually invented stuff and just didn't take credit for what Ubiworks did. Be careful, Disney will come and break your kneecaps. <laughs> They're breaking mine first, it's fine. <laughs> And we had a background for this. Meet the Robinsons is based on A Day with Wilbur Robinson, a 29-page illustrated children's book created by William Joyce. I should have got that right away. I feel kind of dumb that I didn't realize <laughs> it because I was obsessed with George Shrinks, the cartoon, when I was a kid. He was an early blurbo of mine. That's also by, based off of a book by William Joyce, and you can kind of see the sort of, like, fantastic, you know, retro-future design in both of them. They take a lot of creative liberties with the book in order to, you know, pump it out to like a hundred minute feature, but Joyce does have a producing and a writing credit on the movie, so it all happened with his approval. Joyce first got on Disney's radar as a Pixar employee. He worked on character designs for Toy Story and A Bug's Life. The cartoon based on his children's book, Roly Poly Oly, was broadcast and rerun on the Disney Channel throughout the late 90s. Sing, I can sing the song. It's Roly Poly Small and short and brown. It is the world of pearls and twirls. He's a smallest kid around. Oh yeah, no. Roly. It, it was a bit after my time. Yeah, I'm sorry. You, you unlocked poor memory. <laughs> he pressed a button in yeah, both of our brains. Yeah, and, then, and then he had the friends, and they were squares. Oh and it was God. like they were another religion. When you went in their house, you had to say, I declare the house is yeah. square. <laughs> oh, my God. That shows everything. Okay, all right. Despite... <laughs> Despite his Disney pedigree, he got most of his major film projects at Rival Studios. For instance, he was a co-creator, producer, and production designer on Blue Sky Studios' uh, 2005 film, Robots. That makes a lot of sense. I also watched Robots, especially the design of Carl the Robot. Yeah, Carl gives big robots energy, yeah. Mm -hmm. Meet the Robinsons went into production in 2004. It was initially intended as a live-action film, but executives soon handed it off to the animation department. The first character designs were very reflective of Joyce's artwork in the source book, but a new aesthetic was pursued when it became clear that robots would be very reflective of Joyce's visuals and they wanted to make it a little different from that. But everyone in robots is a robot and it's very easy to add like all those angles and exaggerations that you can't quite do with people. Disney storyboard artist Steven Anderson was really drawn to meet the Robinsons because he was a child of adoption and greatly identified with the character of Lewis. He lobbied to direct, and this would serve as his directorial debut. While Joyce's stylistic quirks are downplayed somewhat, his retrofuturist approach to illustration was still an artistic springboard, particularly in the Today Land bit. Animators also cited 1930s three-strip Technicolor films like Gone with the Wind, Adventures of Robin Hood, The Red Shoes, and The Wizard of Oz as influences, plus uh, Golden Age Hollywood musicals of the same period. 
We were still in an era where computer animation was struggling to depict human characters in a way that didn't venture into the uncanny valley. Rachel believes that the uh, visuals of this film have held up pretty well. I do think that there are some PlayStation 2 moments, but yeah, I've definitely seen worse. Yeah, it's, it's pretty good. I mean, I don't know, I feel like it's on par with The Incredibles. Yeah. 2004's The Incredibles is often cited as the first computer animated film to have good humanoid character design. Because and, they're all cartoony! And yeah. Meet the Robinsons' team borrowed heavily from that film. Yeah, you, you can really tell. I think I thought when I saw it originally that it would be like The Incredibles, which I loved. I do think The Incredibles looks better. It, it's good at Pixar money. Yeah, but <laughs> that Pixar budget. <laughs> yeah, the Meet the Robinsons animators also cited Looney Tunes, Cinderella, Peter Pan, and Alice in Wonderland as sources for their take on Meet the Robinsons' 1950s flourishes. On January 24, 2006, Disney acquired Pixar and immediately appointed John Lasseter to, uh, chief creative officer for both Pixar and Walt Disney Animation. The first Disney project that he oversaw from conception to release was Bolt, but he did it's get in- okay. He did get involved in both Chicken Little and Meet the Robinsons. I've not seen Chicken Little. Me neither. I only remember Chicken Little as a summon spell from Kingdom Hearts 2. <laughs> Honestly, you're better off. <laughs> That's for the best. Yeah, I haven't heard great things. Lasseter was not pleased with Meet the Robinsons. He felt that the stakes weren't clearly spelled out and that the antagonist wasn't scary enough. He suggested changes that resulted in 60% of the movie being scrapped and redone from scratch. Damn, I don't know. I mean, if he was anything like how he is, like the bowler hat guy is really creepy. Ten months later, the movie's villain had been heavily retooled, given more prominence, and had acquired a, a sidekick in an evil robotic hat. Doris, best gal. Also, the ending had been changed considerably. Lasseter in insisted upon the um, meeting her at the orphanage time travel ending, and also the, the bit where he you know, gradually grows up in the ending montage. He also suggested that they add a dinosaur and have the dinosaur chase the kid around. Damn it, he's right. <laughs> so yeah, uh, Lasseter is a sex pest, but... Um, when he gave us, I have a big head and an alarm. I, I do remember <laughs> that from the trailer, and uh, yeah, from, from what I guess, like every single suggestion he made was, seemed to be the right move. I think it made the movie better. I hate it when the sex pests are right about things. Mm -hmm. It really pisses me off. Well, an important element of revisiting art from the past, whether it's less than 20 years ago or 400 years ago, is examining the things that the past has gotten wrong. That's an important thing for us to do, I think. People in later generations are going to look at stuff that we made and be like, wow, where the hell well, were they coming they from on that? <laughs> yeah. This is how we progress and become better and improve ourselves. <sighs> so, yeah, I'll take the good with the bad. But let's get into the voice cast. Michael Sarah had been suggested to voice Lewis. That did not happen. I think he would have been too old. I mean, he does have a young, skewing it's voice. A, he is kind of a little bit age eternal, but also he is also Michael Sarah. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, he voiced a little kid in the Lego Batman movie. I bought it. Yeah, shit, I forgot oh about that. God, I forgot that he did. But yeah, Lewis is voiced by Jordan Fry and Daniel Hansen. Hansen had to be replaced when his voice broke. Once again, production took four years. And they had to re-record lines for the post-Lassiter changes. And um, yeah, Hansen wasn't <laughs> able to do that. I, I think he serves as Lewis well enough. I, I always feel that I'm grading kid actors on a curve. Like, if he didn't annoy yeah. me, good job. <laughs> exactly. I think it's good that yeah. he was played by an actual kid, though. Sorry, yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> I do think that casting like actual kids to voice cartoon kids tends to work out. Unless yeah. you're Kirsten Skull! <laughs> <laughs> Like, I am excited about that upcoming Ninja Turtles movie because they actually cast teenagers to voice the turtles, so which... It looks so cute. It, it's, it's surprising that it took that long for someone to do that. It really is. And, um, yeah, there's a there's a little joke about how um, Wilbur lies about how his dad looks like Tom Selleck. So when Cornelia shows up, he's voiced by Tom Selleck. That's pretty funny. No notes. How are they even able to get it? They're probably like, "Want to be a Disney movie? Throw money at him. Yeah, it's Disney. You don't yeah. throw money at anything they want. Also, it's voice work. You don't even have to put on pants. Exactly. Alright, uh, then we have Leslie Singerman as Wilbur. Um, a whole lot of people were considered Tobey Maguire, Shia LaBeouf, Zac Efron, and Levitt. Oh, so David, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt? Damn. Yep. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a quite the cast list possibilities. Yeah, I think any of them would have been fine, but, you know, getting some guy who, you know, is not famous already, I think he did okay. Yeah, I'm always he... into giving it to some guy. Yeah. Disney kind of uses celebrities more anyway now. They do, yeah. Aladdin kind of broke that through when they cast Robin Williams, but then I think the people who kicked into the high gear was DreamWorks. Oh, yeah. Um, there is a lot of complaints amongst voice acting lifers, like, you know, Billy West and Tom Kenny, where um, there's like a major studio will bring them in to voice a uh, character for one of their films, and they don't tell them that it's a scratch vocal. Yep. That's a douche move. Yup. Mm-hmm. Uh, for wider context, a scratch vocal is when uh, somebody lays down a voice recording for a famous person to come in and work off of. Like, if a song is written for Beyonce, they will have, like, an un- unknown singer do it just so Beyonce will have something to work off of. That is also done for CGI cartoon animated voice work. Damn. I'm not against scratch vocals, but you should tell the scratch vocalist that they're not going to wind up in the movie. Yeah. All right, uh, then we have Harlan Williams as Carl, Nicole Sullivan as Franny. Chico, because love Chico. Yep. Angela Bassett was Mildred, apparently Adina Menzel, Christina Applegate, Bette Midler, Rachel McAdams, and Elizabeth Perkins had auditioned for that part. That's a long list of people, but Angela Bassett's always good. We have Adam West as Uncle Art, considering that he is a uh, pizza delivery who's themed after a superhero that was probably considered with him in mind. I mean, he also mm-hmm. played um, the Fearless Ferret in that Kim Possible episode. Oh my God. Speaking of Chigo. <laughs> Exceptional, honestly. <laughs> but yeah, whenever a uh, animated project or even some live action project wanted to have some kind of like retro throwback superhero, if Adam West we'll was just available, call him West. yeah, <laughs> we get Adam. You got yeah. Adam in speed dial, right? Great, call him up. Get him. Uh, Lori Metcalf is Lucille. She just keeps popping up in things. And uh, the director of the film, Stephen Anderson, he was Bowler Hat Guy, uh, Grandpa Bud, and Tallulah. Uh, oh, Jim, wow. Jim Carrey was offered Bowler Hat Guy, but he declined to star in the number 23 instead. Really? He should have been in this instead of the number 23. 100%. Based on the gesticulations of Bowler Hat Guy, uh, I do believe I that they created him with a mind of yeah. like a hammy Jim Carrey voice I performance mean, behind it. he looks and moves exactly like, um, what's the name of the bad guy from Sonic again? Oh. Dr. Robotnik? Yes, yeah. yes, he moves and looks like Dr. Robotnik. Or she Eggman if you're in nice. Japan or under 30. (laughs) Apparently, uh, Will Ferrell, Antonio Banderas, and Steve Carell were also considered for Bowler Hat Guy. 
feel like Steve Carell could have done a good job with that. Yeah. I, I think it's girl. I think it's interesting that uh, eventually the the director just cast himself. Maybe just like nobody know. was available. <laughs> also, well, if they can't do it. I'll do it my damn self. Also, uh, you know, gets him a second check since he also did a couple of other incidental characters. He gets additional checks for that. Thanks, SAG regulations. Hey. <laughs> Anderson recorded most of his dialogue alongside Ethan Sandler since their respective characters interact a lot, and it'd just be easier for them to react to each other live and in person. You know, like a radio drama and i do think that uh most animated projects do better if their voice actors are all just sort of sitting across from each other and able to like react to their facial movements and all that oh yeah it's so much easier to act with people when you can see them ethan sandler meanwhile was dory uncle fritz aunt petunia uncle spike uncle dimitri cousin laszlo and the inventco ceo who um mentioned that those earmuffs were pretty comfortable So, like, whoever was left and was like, we're running out of time and budget, just do another character, Ethan. I got it. I got it. I got it. It's fine. (laughs) Don Hall was Uncle Gaston, and, uh, hey, Tom Kenny was uh, Uncle Mr. Wellerstein. Yeah. God. You always want to have Tom Kenny. You gotta have Tom Kenny in the mix. They don't cast uh, Billy West or uh, Phil Lamar, but, you know, they got Tom Kenny in. (laughs) (laughs) There are a couple of Easter eggs in this, obviously. Um, There's a hidden Mickey on the music sheets when Lewis meets Franny. And there's a hidden Mickey on the cover of Gaston's Stopwatch. Because every Disney animated film has a hidden Mickey. I I saw that. The hidden Mickey. Nice. The dinosaur mascot on Goob's baseball team is a nod to William Joyce's children's book, Dinosaur Bob and His Adventures with the Family Lizardo. Aww, that's, that's sweet. Cute. I thought he was the dinosaur from, like, the dino gas station in Toy Story. Yeah. Of the Pixarverse fame. This is technically a Disney animated film yeah. in a period where they were trying to distinguish themselves from the smaller company they just bought and is doing it better than them currently. We're not the same, guys! <laughs> so, no, no pizza plan and a delivery van there. Alright, the score for this was done by Danny Elfman, which, as we pointed out uh, while we were watching it, oh, I keep forgetting that Danny Elfman did this. I didn't realize every time I get to the credits and I'm like, damn it, that was Danny Elfman? I do it every time. I mean, most of the obvious Elfmanisms aren't in this one. Like, you know, there's no chimes, there's no, like, Tchaikovsky lifts, there's no choir. It's a perfectly functional score. I think this is is the fourth movie we've covered on this podcast that Danny Elfman scored. Like, uh, two of them are, like, iconic things at the top of his resume, and the other one is like, oh, yeah, I keep forgetting that Danny Elfman did Goodwill Hunting. Yeah, because I was to ask you what that one was. <laughs> Goodwill Hunting. Yes, he did they the score call- for Goodwill Hunting. I'm sorry. They did that movie, and they said, you know what? We'll call Danny for this. He's got a long-ass resume. He's done a lot. We just mostly think of him as, you know, That's the Batman and Nightmare Before Christmas guy. Yeah. There are four original songs by Rufus Wainwright, Jamie Cullen, and Rob Thomas. There are needle drops from the All-American Rejects, the Jonas Brothers, and They Might Be Giants. It was 2007. What do you expect? This just looks like something that They Might Be Giants should have a song in. Like the the, the two uncles who are hiding in the potted plants and demanding that you ring their doorbell. They kind of look like the They Might Be Giants guys. (laughs) But um, the musical numbers in this film are pretty limited, especially by Disney. 
Disney standards. This is a weird period where having songs in animated kids' movies were seen as passe. Instead, uh, pop music needle drops were the, the, the main go-to, as popularized in Shrek. Yeah, like, like because of Shrek, right? Really? <laughs> yeah, I think we're currently in a mode where it's a hard left back into making these movies yeah. into songs again with like lots of Andrew Lloyd Weber-ishisms. Probably a lot to do with Let It Go there. We'll see how long that lasts. Even Wreck-It Ralph 2 has that Slaughter Ray song. Oh my god, the Slaughter And then they brought in Menken to write it. It's a cute song. They did, no, it's wicked cute. <laughs> but in Wreck-It Ralph 2? For real? Anyway. <laughs> Unlike Chicken Little, which was converted into uh, 3D in post, Meet the Robinsons was made with a 3D release in mind. 3D screenings were preceded by a 3D version of the 1953 Chip and Dale short, Wait, Working for Peanuts, which is a cute short. That's wicked cute. I mean, this is a bit of a tangent, but I think a big reason why I don't have nostalgic fondness for those vintage-era Disney shorts is just because Disney hid them in a walled garden on the Disney Channel when I was a kid and I never saw mm. them. Whereas the Looney Tunes were just on infinite repeat, just background radiation throughout my childhood and just sort of seeped in that way. And yeah, looking up a bunch of those like 1950s Disney shorts on streaming and I was like, wow, these are really charming. Mm-hmm. I, I, w- I probably would have a lot of nostalgia for them if they were screened while I was a kid. Yeah, yeah I cried at the ugliest duckling. Yep, yep. Anyway, standard screenings included the 1938 Mickey Mouse short, uh, Boat Builders. Yeah, uh, Meet the Robinsons came out a little before Avatar, but we were during a period where like 3D was having a moment again. Oh my god, it was everywhere. I mean, it hasn't gone away completely. I still see 3D glasses at the multiplex, but uh, yeah, it's just a part of the thing now. The last time that I saw it in theaters that was 3D was a house with a clock in its walls, and that was just because they were doing a showing on IMAX of the Thriller music video, and I wanted to see that, and it was just happened to be in 3D. Yeah, I took Toby to see it. He wasn't super impressed. <laughs> he read the book first. I think that was his first moment where he's like, the book is bad. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> the real world. <laughs> I mean, you know, it has to happen eventually. It's Might as well be when you're 10. Rip that band-aid off. <laughs> All right, uh, Meet the Robinsons had a budget of $150 million. It grossed 169.3, which uh, must have been a bit of a disappointment. Mm-hmm. 2007 was an interesting year for animated features. The ones that made more money than Meet the Robinsons were Ratatouille. I mean, Ratatouille. <laughs> Shrek the Third and The Simpsons Movie. I mean, and I was in summer camp, the Simpsons movie was all anyone wanted to quote that year, and there was so much Spider-Pig and Harry Flopper. Oh Spider-Pig still happens in my head from time to time, and <laughs> I wasn't even a Simpsons person. Yeah, I, I took my little second cousins to it, and um, they had just gotten into The Simpsons, and they were super excited, and they hadn't seen any of the crappy seasons yet, and they were just on cloud nine the whole way through. That was a good experience. I, I didn't see Meet the Robinsons that year. I just saw it for the first time before this podcast. <laughs> there was a canceled Meet the Robinsons sequel. Aw, that's too bad. I wonder what they would have done. That is not too bad. Yeah, I don't actually have questions. Okay. Disney Toon Studios, the division that spent the 90s uh, cranking out direct-to-video sequels like Return of uh, Jafar, Beauty and the Beast, The Enchanted uh, Christmas, uh-huh. Lion King 1 and a Half, and Mulan 2. Begin Lion King 1 and a Half is a masterpiece. Everyone's like, those 90s straight-to-video sequels all fucking suck. All of them Except are Lion King except 1 and a Half. Lion King you want to know what's really interesting? 
I don't know where it is, but on a DVD I have, there's a special feature where you can watch a preview for the upcoming Disney direct-to-DVD sequel of Dumbo 2. No. It got canceled, oh. so it doesn't actually exist. I have had multiple people tell me that Mulan 2 is the worst movie they've ever seen. I've never seen out. it. I've, I've never seen it, but I'm not surprised. I tried that. to watch it. The animation is so bad. <sighs> Anyways, that crew was working on a Meet the Robinson sequel. Okay, no, then never yeah, mind. No, your hands far, 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 far away from that. Alongside sequels to Dumbo, Chicken Little, and the Aristocats. What in the fuck were they ever going to do with a sequel to the actual pile of garbage Chicken Little? Okay, I have some more bad news for you. Oh, no. Lasseter canceled all these projects. Lasseter's belief that while the direct-to-video sequels throughout the 90s were profitable, their cheap production values and lower quality were hurting the Disney brand in the long run. He had Disney Toon shift its focus away from sequels to beloved Disney uh, animated features and into spin-off in the original productions, which largely meant a bunch of Tinkerbell shit and those Planes <laughs> movies. <laughs> So, John Lasseter is the reason why those direct-to-video Disney uh, sequels stopped. Everybody say a begrudging thank you to John. <laughs> Still sex pass. <laughs> uh, Disney Toon Studios was finally, finally shut down in 2018. No more, long. no more planes movies. <laughs> there was yet another planes movie in development, and Disney just yanked a plug on it. it. Yeah. Highlight of the recording right there. <laughs> Nicely done, Kate. Thank you Yay! so, so Alright, and uh, that brings me to themes. I only wrote down one, which I titled Disney Plays the Long Game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anecdotally speaking, Disney Parks has a Sword in the Stone stage and performances that reenact scenes from that 1963 film on a regular occurrence. It, I'm surprised because I watched it for the first time at your parents' house like on Easter and I was like, wow, this is the most boring movie yeah, I've ever watched. It's not great. <laughs> Characters from The Sword in the Stone show up in Disney media fairly often. Uh, House of Mouse and Kingdom Hearts spring to mind. I personally have a lot of affection for The Sword in the Stone. It's in my Disney top five. It's my Aristocats. <laughs> All right, that, that here's is the, fair. Here's That's this crappy fair. one that nobody else likes, but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> It's fair. And it's generally not seen as one of Disney's best. Uh, the animation is not up to the studio's golden age standards. You can see the pencil lines. And the story structure is a bit disjointed. Although I'd argue that the character designs, voice acting, and dialogue are a lot of fun. Still, Sword in the Stone has a place in Disney's brand identity. The IP is routinely brought out in connection to the wider Disney empire. It is frequently dusted off and reintroduced to nostalgic parents and a new audience of kids every few years. They're there is a live-action remake in the works. Of course there is. Disney needs that money. There's a live-action remake of The Black Cauldron in the works. Ooh, okay, that could actually that, be that cool. Actually, yeah. I mean, yeah, if they if they do it closer to the source books, but, I mean, I think ultimately, like, what a dick wave that would be. What a big, long dick wave that would be if they took their most infamous failure and turned it into something profitable. That's fair. I just want more about a mem content. <laughs> Disney is usually described primarily as a film studio, but that hasn't been the case since the 1970s. When you look at their sources of revenue, it'd be more accurate to describe Disney as a hospitality company with an especially flamboyant advertising wing. 
I'm sure the films and TV shows make money. As I've already stated, 40% of Hollywood's box office is Disney fare in recent years. But it's the theme parks and the cruise line that makes the serious dough. Although, after they acquired ESPN, that started taking up a bigger part of the pie because, you know, sports. Yeah, sports streaming. But yeah, uh, when Disney released Black Panther, they weren't just looking at the ticket sales for the first movie and the first wave of t-shirt and action figures. They were also thinking about having Black Panther potentially having a presence in Disneyland. Someone noticed that black families on cruise ships had bored four to seven-year-old boys who might get more out of the Disney experience if there was a popular Afro-futuristic movie hero who looked like an idealized version of themselves that they could trade high fives with and selfies. Even Disney's financial disappointments can have surprising legs. Hocus Pocus was a box office flop upon its 1993 release, and now in the 2020s, I see inflatable Sanderson sister lawn ornaments on my neighbor's yards every October. Am I allowed to say that as someone who lives and works in Salem, I hate Hocus Pocus. I hated it when I watched it as a kid, and I hate it as an adult, and I hate it even more having to deal with all the goddamn Hocus Pocus bullshit in Salem. I was shocked <laughs> to learn that it was a cult movie. I thought that it was just treated like a big deal here because they shot a couple of scenes here. But then I was like, oh no, this is a thing everywhere. No, it's a whole thing. People, People come to Salem for this. Yeah. Disney might be too big to fail. Even their lesser properties are seen by millions of people, as I've already said, and the company has been repackaging its catalog for profitable re-release for most of its history. Like, if you look at the list of the top 100 grossing films of all time, you'll see a lot of Disney movies on there, and almost none of it is from their first-run releases. They'll put out 101 Dalmatians, and they'll do okay. And then five years later, they'll throw it in theaters again, and people will buy tickets, and there'll be kids who are coming around and ready for their first Disney movie, and they'll see that. And that's just the cycle it went. And then after theatrical re-releases were downplayed as home video came up, we had the Disney Vault. And every time something got let out of the Disney Vault, it was treated like a big event. You had to go out and buy that VHS before it went back in the Disney Vault. Stressful. I know, I was feeling like a a Sonic the Hedgehog drowning music countdown (laughs) clock. Oh no, I won't have the Aristocats on VHS. That didn't work on me, but it worked on Rachel. That's a Rachel hey, Chug, nostalgic childhood fave. Um, I didn't have it on VHS. I had it on DVD because when it was only on VHS, we would just get it from the library all the time. The movie <laughs> on VHS that was Disney that I watched all the goddamn time was The Jungle Book. Jungle Book, also kind of threadbare by my record. Yeah, reckoning. it is, but it redeems itself because it has Baloo and Bagheera, and they're just like two Baloo, yeah. grumpy gay dads. They really, really yeah. are. Yeah, but Tailspin has them too, and Tailspin's delightful. Yes. Uh, Meet the Robinsons seems like a nigh-forgotten property now, but it could become one of those IPs that rises like a phoenix once the kids who saw it in 2007 age into a demographic with credit scores, lower back pain, and disposable income for bowler hat guy bobbleheads. Weirder (laughs) shit has happened. I have all three of those things. (laughs) (laughs) See, it's coming around. Please. Like, like, I'm begging. Like maybe at some point when Gen Z becomes like a homeowning demographic, Meet the Robinsons will be seen as a beloved classic on the same level as Hocus Pocus. God, I hope not. <laughs> I want to be better than Hocus Pocus. All right, well, that's everything I've written down. Is, uh, is there anything you'd like to add that we haven't covered in Meet the Robinsons um, yet? I'm just going to say the cursed thought that I said while we were oh, watching the movie. No, I said this that, to everyone on the internet. That um, the bowler hat guy, if he had maybe released at a different point in time, he would like have been six years later. A, a Tumblr sexy man. 
I believe you right away because I Tom, know it's so obvious. The onceler from that yep. terrible Illumination Lorax movie oh was God. a Tumblr sexy guy for a little bit. Yeah, he was the like he's the Tumblr sexy man. When I think of the Tumblr sexy man, capital T, capital T. Um, I think of I know that they did a poll and the ultimate winner was Cecil from um, Welcome to Night Shut Show. Up. Yes. Um, but no, I think it could also actually. be really any valid. of the supernatural guys, Benedict Cumberbatch, the Doctor, specifically the Eleventh Doctor, and then the Undertale guy. You are it, triggering the very, very, very specific part of my brain that is a seventeen-year-old that was on Tumblr. Oh from yeah, 2010 me too. To oh, same. <laughs> Tumblr in the 2010s is an interesting landscape, and I should probably illuminate this for people who are on the outside of it because it is actually a pretty small community that it appears incredibly exotic and foreign to people who were not a part of it but um yeah tumblr was a social media site where a lot of young girls came and just sort of cross-pollinated their very very niche interests with each other yeah yep. where'd you it, get your shoelaces i stole them from the president yeah <laughs> i took her i took a quiz and it asked me how how much on tumblr was i during that period I got 61%. I got 70. Well, here's the thing. I, I was into Doctor Who and Sherlock, but I did not cut Supernatural. Supernatural. Okay. I did all three. All right, that, that's probably Hulk. why. And yeah, for a period it's during not the... not Homestuck either. Oh, I guess not Homestuck. For a period for the mid to late 2010s, a number of 17-year-old girls on Tumblr got sexually fixated on weird animated fare that was not intended to be fetishized in that specific way, and that included the Wunstler, as voiced by Ed Helms in the Lorax movie. Definitely look up the video, like the history of the Wunstler by Sarah Z, pronounced Sarah Z oh, on yeah, YouTube. It's yeah. so interesting. She goes into it, and it's just the most absolutely bonkers thing you've ever heard of. Just in terms of like internet rabbit holes, a plurality of people congregated around this, thousands of people, and to anybody who wasn't there in that moment, it's just a what the hell thing. Yeah. Where you want? Literally nothing, just teenage hormones. Oh my god, yeah, I'm now having like war flashbacks to like DashCon, like another hour in the ball pit. Please do not Yeah, okay, you're gonna have to look it up, but just to make it short, if you've ever heard of DashCon, it was one of the, it was the Tumblr convention, and it was an absolute disaster. They had a tiny shitty ball pit, and that was supposed to be like a big deal. So the phrase you can and have it's an another inflatable pool filled yeah, with balls. Yes. Like you can spend another hour in the ball pit. So yeah, um <laughs> Gen Z people, there is a chance that your lady when she was younger and going through a period where she thought Lana Del Rey was the world's greatest poet, also had a thing for the Wansler. Mm-hmm. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, um, although, what was I going to say? I mean, we all could have been just obsessed with Shigo instead. I mean, that's how you know you're, you're a bi girl, is that you had a big crush on Shigo. Were you obsessed Correct. with him? Yes, I was. Yes. I don't know if I, I wanted just to... think she's neat. I was like, I mean, I no, liked... Honey, you're, you're, you're queer. I liked Kim, but every time there was an episode of Kim Possible on and Shigo was Shigo. not in it, I was very upset. Oh, yeah, we had a round table for, like, which fictional character made you realize that you were a little gay. Basically, most women our age are going to say Shigo. For Sylvan, it was a combination of Ariel from The Little Mermaid and Rogue from The X-Men. Res- much respectful. Much respect. I'm like really thinking. Oh, God, oh you know what? It might have been. It was Amy Pond and Doctor Who. Okay. Um, I was <laughs> oh, you picked an actual person. Uh, okay, and all right, person definitely Carrie from the Sweet Life of Zack and Cody. Milf. That's really fair. Yeah. Um, she was so hot. She had cool hair. But also definitely. What's the name of Doug's sister from from Doug? Judy funny. Judy funny. I had a huge crush crush on Judy. I mean, Patty's cute, but 
I don't know, if, again, it was the whole, do I want to be her or with her, with mm-hmm, Judy Funny? Mm-hmm, she had a cute mm-hmm, little mm-hmm. hat and a beret. She was too cool for school. I, I, I kind of <laughs> wish that there was, like, ice dancing Shakespeare plays like Disney on Ice. I, 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 I'd buy tickets for that tomorrow. I so many tickets. Oh, same. Oh, God. Okay, well, we're going off the rails here, so uh, thanks for listening, everybody, and join us again for something else. Bye. Bye.